Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the trial of Alex Jones in Austin, Texas, where Jones was just hit with a $4 million fine, as the jury now decides how much more money Jones should pay to the families of the Sandy Hook victims of the gun massacre at an elementary school in 2012 because of the sick conspiracy theories Jones peddled on his TV show Infowars. Joining us is James Moore, an Emmy Award-winning television news correspondent who has covered Texas politics and has traveled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976. He's the founder of Big Ben Strategies and publishes regularly a weekly Substack newsletter, Texas to the World. And we will discuss the very consequential blunder by Jones's lawyer who accidentally sent two years worth of Jones's text to the lawyer of the Sandy Hook family who has been asked by the House Select Committee investigating January 6th to hand them over since they contain texts between Jones and Roger Stone, both of whom pleaded the fifth when interviewed by the committee. Then we'll go to the UK to speak with Oliver Bullock, a journalist and regular contributor to The Guardian, The New York Times and GQ. He has authored two non-fiction books about Russian history and politics, The Last Man in Russia and Let Our Fame Be Great, as well as Moneyland, Why Thieves and Crooks Now Rule the World and How to Take It Back. His latest book is Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals, and we will discuss how the UK has become a haven for laundering dirty money, particularly from Russian oligarchs, who are still hiding their money behind the English Limited Partnerships, ELPs. Then finally, we will look into the many countries poised to default on their debts following Sri Lanka's inability to pay down $54 billion in foreign debts, a burden exacerbated by the rise in interest rates, now making it even more difficult for these countries to service debts. Joining us is Jamie Martin, a professor of history and social studies at Harvard University, who until recently was a professor at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service and Department of History at Georgetown University. His research focuses on the history of international political economy and empire, particularly during the era of the world wars, and he is the author of a new book just out, The Meddlers, Sovereignty, Empire, and the Birth of Global Economic Governance. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is James Moore, an Emmy Award-winning television news correspondent who has covered Texas politics and has traveled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976. He's the founder of Big Ben Strategies and publishes a weekly Substack newsletter, Texas to the World. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Moore. Hey, Ian, it's always good to join you. Well, thanks for 
joining us. And you're there in Austin, Texas, where the trial is underway with Alex Jones being tried for damages to the parents of the kids that were killed at Sandy Hook back in 2012. And the jury is out now deliberating on whether what kind of penalties he should pay. He apparently makes something like $300 million a year. Is that right? Well, one of the lines of testimony that we heard monitoring the trial was that at least one day that was presented in court, he made $800,000 in one day. And of course, that extrapolates out to about $300 million a year, which is an astonishing amount of money just for telling lies and fantastic tales that aren't true, that yet cause all sorts of cultural and social problems for people. He's getting rich often not telling the truth and and, and destroying lives. It's, it's just unconscionable. I, I personally hope the court hits him and hits him hard. But where does this money come from? He hawks products, you know, like doomsday products and gold and all kinds of fringe stuff. Is that where the money comes from? I think that's where the majority of it comes from. He used to make money with with carry provisions when he was on, you know, when he was on different platforms, he could make a lot of money on YouTube. He used to be on YouTube and he got kicked off of there and he got kicked off of Facebook. He had so many followers that on Facebook, for instance, when you're, when you're a presence like he was, uh, the ads pop up and you make a great deal of money on ads. And the same is true of what happened to him on Facebook. But I think the majority of his money comes from true believers he does get people sending him in money. He has a place on his website where you can just contribute to the cause, as it were. And he also makes money selling all of these strange products, anything from increasing your manhood to your overall health and and seeds to, to grow products and grow food after the doomsday comes. So he's he's doing anything to turn a quick buck and people are people are buying his nonsense. So does that mean then, Jim, that on the jury there could be two people that are his followers? You know, this is the hard thing to grapple with in modern-day America. What percentage of the country are just completely nuts and they've lost it and they believe stupid stuff uh, and conspiracy theories? And this is what this guy peddles. And you say he's got a, a big following. He must have to raise that kind of money. So that's a concern, isn't it, that you could have a couple of nutcases on the jury that could throw the case? Well, I, 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 I believe that they would, have, they would have circumvented this during voir dire when they were, uh, when they were picking the jury and they were asking questions on, on who can be fair and what their background was, I would assume that the prosecution counsel would have, the the, uh, plaintiff's counsel would have asked questions about, have you ever uh, been a subscriber or contributed or in any way supported Alex Jones? Are you a fan? And answering yes to those questions would, of course, disqualify you. And if you answer no and you lie, you perjure yourself and risk jail, but you also uh, create the risk of a mistrial and getting this all tossed out and forcing it to start over. And I don't, I would assume that anybody who was called for jury duty on this thing would have been 
circumspect and been cautious about about that sort of thing. But to your point, Ian, uh, you know, we had 72 million people, didn't we, who voted for Donald Trump. So there are a lot of people out there who believe guys like Alex Jones and believe uh, Donald Trump. And I mean, Jones interviewed Trump and they, you know, they shared their conspiracy theories on the air. So it's it's not unlikely in terms of just straight up odds that, you know, one out of four people in this country is uh, somebody who supports Trump. And and it's just as probable that that many people support Alex Jones. And again, I'm speaking with James Moore, an Emmy Award winning television news correspondent who has covered Texas politics and has traveled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976. He's the founder of Big Ben Strategies and publishes regularly a weekly Substack newsletter, Texas to the World. So the amazing thing that happened in this trial was that the lawyers for Jones accidentally sent tears of Alex Jones's text messages to the Sandy Hook lawyer, Mark Bankston. And he's apparently already been contacted by the House Select Committee on the January 6th insurrection. They really want these text messages because they cover the area that Jones already testified, where he he called for protection under the Fifth Amendment uh, over a hundred times to, uh, to avoid answering questions. Apparently, the texts that included in this two-year cache of texts that now the Sandy Hook lawyer has uh, cover his conversations with with Roger Stone. So that could be explosive, couldn't it? Uh, particularly given that these two meeting prior to January 6th and Jones on his show has said that he was one of the organizers and all this stuff. So this is a real hot potato. At this point, the judge has more or less indicated she sees no reason why the texts of two years worth of Jones's text shouldn't be sent to the January 6th committee. So where does it stand now? I know the jury's out and they're not even deliberating on this issue, but um, what do you think is going to happen here, Jim? Well, I don't. I don't think there's any doubt that the the committee, the January sixth committee, is going to get those texts. And as you suggest, and they could be explosive because it it has been claimed by Jones previously and Roger Stone and others that Trump asked them to lead the march on the Capitol. So that would that would sort of lend some credence. I, I think a great deal. Uh, to this whole idea that this was planned and 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 set up and Trump was involved. And if we have these kinds of exchanges in text from his phone to a presidential phone or to Roger Stone's or to Meadows' phone or somebody else's, it's pretty incriminating. Now, Alex was in Washington with his ever-present bullhorn, but he did not go into the Capitol building, but he certainly was fulminating the anger of the crowd. And if he was there doing that at the behest of the president, it just adds, to me, it adds more one brick to the pile of evidence that's accumulating against Donald Trump and and his staff in terms of making this event happen and putting the country at great risk. And it would be, it would be almost impossible for me to believe in some ways, Ian, because I've seen this guy from the beginning of his idiocy and his chaos, 
And he started out here in Austin on cable television. He had a program that people used to listen to and watch on access cable, almost as if you rubberneck at a, a car crash on the interstate. And then uh, while I was up covering the Branch Davidian stand-up for all 52 days, I saw him up there. He had a radio show at that point, and he was coming in and screaming and hollering and, and, and making all sorts of outrageous claims. And more and more people paid attention to him. And the fact that somebody could come from that sort of chaotic, mentally unstable beginning and go all the way to the point of being complicit and almost destroying the democracy is mind-boggling when you think about it, because it speaks not just about him, but to me it speaks a great deal about where our country is. Only in America, I'm afraid, Jim. And you you say you've known this guy and watched his antics since the Branch Davidian uh, standoff in Waco, Texas, which has become a kind of watershed event for the far-right-wing militias people in this country? Well, I mean, the Branch Davidian standout to many people uh, was a seminal moment because it, it, you know, obviously it triggered Timothy McVeigh to a year later to the date to blow up the Oklahoma City courthouse. But what it did for people on the right who believed the government was evil, it sort of affirmed everything that they had thought once those tanks rolled into that clapboard compound and fired in tear gas, which is hot enough to set the place on fire. And then David Koresh told everyone to stay and no one could leave and they all burned to death. It sort of looked like the government had made a huge mistake or had tried to assassinate people and it just got spun worse and worse and worse and the government became the enemy. But as seminal as that moment was, let's remember that this whole anti-government thing and the government is the enemy began way back in Ronald Reagan when he made his comment about the scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. We have decided uh, politically that the government's the bad guy. And frankly, the government is the organizing principle of every, every culture and economy and society and history. And we, we have to have government. We just need to manage government properly make it fair. And our government has turned into a place uh, for corporate control, rich money people, and, and crazies. And it's it's frightening. And Alex, Alex Jones is complicit in making all of that happen. Well, the trial itself, uh, where he's just exposed as such a liar, and, and he's a really sick person, obviously. And and, you know, he may say stuff on the stand that seems reasonable, like he believes that the massacre of those children at Sand Hook was real. But then he goes, immediately after he leaves the courthouse, he goes and, and trashes the parents of the kids that are suing him. And these parents have gone through unbelievable anguish, having lost their, their boy. And then he's basically, you had you had the... The mother on the stand saying face to face to him, look, I'm real. I'm not an actress. You say I was an actress. You say my kid didn't exist. He did exist. They showed pictures of the kid. The father even had to testify that sure that it was the kid was real. I held his body with a bullet wound in his forehead and the rest of his head blown off. I mean, this is so cruel that this what this man has done 
and I think it's a it's a, it's a metaphor for an American sickness. I've I've wondered from time to time if he is pathological and he cannot tell the difference between the reality he believes in in his compartmentalized little brain or the reality that confronts him every day, or if he is just insidiously evil, that he knows about his lies, he understands his lies, and he doesn't care who they hurt because they bring him attention, they bring him money, they bring him an audience, and uh, he knows that as long as he says these outrageous things, attention will come in his direction. And I think in many ways it's caught up with him. And uh, what a courageous thing the parents, these two parents have done to spend their time and their money and their effort to come here and confront this nonsense because they may be doing not just themselves justice, but the rest of us justice to get this guy out of the way. I mean, there are many people who are hoping that he faces financial ruin and the court and the jury will offer damages, punitive damages that are significant enough that he cannot recover from it uh, financially. But of course, there he has filed, as everyone knows, uh, for bankruptcy, and it's it's possible he has sheltered some of his uh, resources off funds, and he will walk away from this just fine. But uh, it's it's just a horror show that this guy has become uh, a piece of the culture of this country and that people are suffering because he's got a microphone. Well, suffering the loss of their child, and then for years later, the abuse from this man who's saying that the kid didn't exist, that the mother's an an actress, and it's taken them this long to get him to court to, you know, bring him to account. And, you know, Neil Heslin and Scarlett Lewis, the father and mother of Jesse Lewis, you know, been, I don't know what kind of compensation they're asking for. I think 150 million. If the guy makes 300 million a year, that's pretty small potatoes. He's obviously have the ability to hide a lot of money. But the one thing that you mentioned, Jim, which I find troubling, is why is there an audience for this guy? That's you know, he's become successful. You know, and of course you'd say, well, what about Donald Trump? He's making a comeback based on a lie with Stop the Steal. So, you know, that's, that's a head-scratcher too. So what's happening to the country? <laughs> well, boys, you got a couple of years. We could keep talking on that one. He, um, but I think that there are, you know, if you look at these, these people who are into QAnon, for instance, that we had – we had people come and stand in Dealey Plaza in for 10 days awaiting the return of JFK and his son uh, to come back and be president with Donald Trump. I mean, this isn't just this isn't just a sort of, uh, you know, a, a political construct. There's there may be some sort of uh, mass pathology or or psychological psychotic break for a significant part part of the population, people who, you know, people who've been marginalized by work or lack of education, and they find something to grasp onto and believe in and, and uh, tell them, you know, tell them the lie often enough and loud enough, as, as Goebbels said, and, and, uh, and they begin to believe it. But, but yeah, it is, it's, it's a, it's a very disconcerting thing that's occurring in our country that 72 million people 
would vote for a man uh, who believes that he won the election regardless that, and, and, and continue to support him by the millions, send him money in the mail, unsolicited even. He raises, you know, he raises money off everything from his wife's death to what, you know, to any other daily development. And, and Alex Jones is, he just seems to be an artifact of what's wrong with our country. Now, he, he created, in part, what's wrong with our country, but, but if we had some, some economic stability and, and, and a, a social safety net and, and a, a way in this country for everybody to uh, not be completely feel at risk a lot, uh, I don't think these things would happen. I, I, think, I think our institutions are broken, and I think so many people feel like they've been left alone and nobody listens to them, that, that when you get a guy like Alex or a guy like Trump out there in the streets saying this stuff, they're drawn to it because it sounds like, hey, maybe here's a solution. And, and that's, that's what drags us all into the ditch. Well, James Moore, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian, as always. And again, I've been speaking with James Moore, who's an Emmy Award-winning television news correspondent who has covered Texas politics and has traveled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976. He's the founder of Big Ben Strategies and publishes regularly a weekly Substack newsletter, Texas to the World. We're going to take a brief station break and back to discuss how the UK has become a haven for laundering dirty money, particularly from Russian oligarchs who are now hiding their money behind the English Limited Partnerships, ELPs. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is Oliver Bullock, who is a journalist and regular contributor to The Guardian, The New York Times, and GQ. He has authored two non-fiction books about Russian history and politics, The Last Man in Russia, and Let Our Fame Be Great, as well as Moneyland, Why Thieves and Crooks Now Rule the World and How to Take It Back. And his latest book just out is Butler to the World, how Britain became the servant of tycoons, tax dodgers, kleptocrats, and criminals. Welcome to Background Briefing, Oliver Bullock. Thanks. thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks for joining us. And after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Prime Minister Boris Johnson said he wanted to open up the Matryoshka doll of Russian-owned companies to reveal their true owners. And now we're learning from a BBC Finance Uncovered uh, investigation that Putin's best buddies and the oligarchs who are his cutouts, like his judo partners, Arkady and Boris Rottenberg, are using vehicles in the United Kingdom that weren't shut down. In 2016 and 2017, the government introduced measures that forced almost all UK companies to identify their real owners, but 
this vehicle called ELPs, English Limited Partnerships, weren't covered by these new transparency laws. And apparently these Russian oligarchs, including Putin's inner circle, have been exploiting them. Yeah, I mean, it's loopholes all the way down, really. There are loopholes in the loopholes. And then you find within those further loopholes, it gets this very strange fractal form. Back in January and February, there was this sort of sudden reversal when it looked like in January, the government didn't care about financial crime, the minister resigned. And then February, Putin's assault on Kiev. And suddenly everyone's talking about financial crime. We need to solve it. And they did promise all these new measures would come in to to bring transparency to the kind of these kind of murky structures that you're talking about. And and there have been bits and bobs and some laws have been passed, but really it didn't amount to a hill of beans. And I fear the wind has now gone out of that particular sail. And so, yes, we will be discovering in a few years' time that there were yet more loopholes that we didn't know about that were being exploited by clever lawyers working for wealthy oligarchs. So nothing's really been done to hold to account the wealth protection industry in the city of London. Well, I mean, they brought in a law in March, which was to impose transparency on offshore owned property. So property in the UK, which is owned via a shell company registered elsewhere, whether that's Delaware or Nevada or St. Kitts and Nevis or, or Liberia or Seychelles, wherever, places that don't you know, declare who owns their companies. And, and you know, the idea was that they would, if they own property here, they would have to declare who owns them. And that has come into effect, but it's essentially voluntary in that there are many to avoid it, it's very easy to, to to dodge its requirements, and anyone could could figure out a way to do it. So it doesn't take a highly skilled lawyer. They, you know, they also created a new sort of countering kleptocracy cell in the National Crime Agency that was supposed to get the oligarchs on the run. But we we learned a couple of weeks ago that it's it's only got funding until April. So I don't think many oligarchs are going to be running very far if they're only going to be able to come back April. And then you know, there's supposed to be a bit of work to clean up our corporate registry, which is a bit of a mess. Uh, because of structures like English limited partnerships, like you mentioned, and many other exotic uh, structures of that nature. But, you know, it, it, if it doesn't come with extra resourcing for the law enforcement structures, then it, it's all meaningless. You know, the government has a track record of passing acceptable laws and they're not enforcing them. It's been doing it for years. Um, and, you know, at the moment, you know, the average, well, the, the average officer in the National Crime Agency is, is funded at a level about a third as high as an officer in the FBI. And that just tells you all you need to know about how seriously the British government takes tackling financial crime. You know, there aren't many officers to begin with, and the ones that there are are being, you know, funded extremely poorly. It's not surprising that they do a bad job when it comes to taking on oligarchs who, if they're, one thing we know about them is that they're rich and resourceful and they like to pay for expensive lawyers. But in your new book, Oliver Bullock, Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals, you indicated it's almost a structural problem where in terms of the bureaucracies, it's it's somebody else's problem that you write, you know, that the threat is not purely criminal. So it's not the police's responsibility. It's not military. So the Ministry of Defence doesn't step up and it's not the spies. So our security services don't step in. Is that still a problem? Absolutely. Essentially, you know, the, the, the long term story here is one of the end of Britain's empire, Britain needed a way to make a living and discovered that there was money to be made by moving money around the world for oligarchs from other countries. You know, we didn't have our own oligarchs anymore, but there were plenty of oligarchs out there who we could help 
manage their money. And if you're doing then it's not profitable to have competent or well-resourced law enforcement agencies. You don't want to have a transparent property sector. You don't want to have you know, politicians who ask too many questions about where the money comes from. And essentially, that's what we have. We have a deeply complicit political class, deeply complicit professional class, all of which are essentially, you know, like the three monkeys. They, 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 they're not asking any questions because they don't want to know, they don't want to see, they don't want to hear where the money comes from. And that is, you know, essentially the, the problem. And certainly under this government, I don't see any chance of that changing. So let's talk then about how Britain changed from the empire to this kind of money laundering haven, and or I guess it happened. There's a couple of key points, but the 1956 Suez Crisis that you point to as as when the change took place, where they created this kind of offshoring. Of course, the Suez Crisis was <laughs> even even a greater tragedy in many ways. It was, of course, a preemptive attack on the Suez Canal by the UK, France, and Israel. It happened at a time when there was a revolution happening against the Soviets in Hungary, and it reached the point where the Soviets uh, were about to kind of relinquish to the reformers in Hungary, and then the minute that the Suez uh, attack happened, it took the entire Hungarian story off the headlines and then the Russians were able to renege on their promises and then slaughter the very people that they were negotiating with and thus postpone the possibility of liberalization in the in the Warsaw Pact. So it was there was some there was some geopolitical collateral damage uh, as well as uh, the end of empire for the British and the French. I mean yeah it's a, it was a disaster in every dimension really apart from perhaps the Egyptians who eventually came out of it controlling their main geopolitical asset, you know, as they should have been allowed to do all along. Um, what was really important here is that, you know, when the British were trying to sort of continue with this ludicrous adventure, which they had launched to regain control of the Suez Canal, and the Americans in particular were, were, were standing up to them and saying that they mustn't do this and had frozen their assets, their access to dollars, the British were still trying to continue. And in order to try and keep their going, they severely restricted what could be done with pounds. And at the time, it's sort of hard to remember, but the pound sterling had been the main global currency. And, you know, back, back in the 1950s, it wasn't, it didn't quite have equal status to the dollar, but it was still the other world currency. It was still a significant global currency. Um, and it was the main currency of the city of London, you know, the preeminent financial centre of what was left of the British Empire. And without access to pounds, the, the banks of the city of London desperately needed something to do. How were they going to stay in business? And they seized on this idea that had been floated a year earlier, that instead of using pounds, they could just use dollars. And in this discovery, they realized that, completely by accident, it wasn't intentional. They were just desperate for some, some way of staying in business. But they realized that by using dollars instead of pounds in London, there were no rules, because British rules didn't apply if you weren't using pounds. And American rules didn't apply if you weren't doing your transaction in the United States. So they invented, they created this place offshore, this, this legal space where nothing was happening. And it's particularly ironic, as you mentioned, that this took place at the same time as the brutal crushing of the Hungarian uprising, the, the attempt by the Hungarians to break free of 
of, of Soviet control, because the initial dollars that were first banked in London the year before that gave London bankers this idea, those dollars came from the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had been concerned about keeping its dollars in the United States. It was concerned that they might be frozen in the event of a geopolitical crisis and had been looking for somewhere else to put them. And they put them in London and realized that that could be a very profitable place to put them. And, you know, if you think at the time, this is the height of the Cold War, the Suez missile, the, the Suez, the, sorry, the Cuban missile crisis hadn't happened yet. You know, Stalin had only been dead for a couple of years. And yet London was prepared to be, provide banking services to the USSR so it could avoid restrictions placed on it by the United States, Britain's closest ally. And that, I think, tells you all you need to know about who Britain is prepared to go into business with if there's money to be made. It was happy to provide banking services to its geopolitical foe in order to avoid the restrictions of the US. And that tells you everything, really. Um, and it's been the case ever since, you know, though, though there's been a, an awareness now for a long time, you know, going back, obviously, at least until, until 2006 with the murder of Alexander Litvinenko in London with Polonium 210, but frankly, to anyone with eyes to see going way back further, that Russia was not going to become a stable democracy. It wasn't in the, in, on the way of turning into, into Denmark. It was going to become a, a foe again. And yet all the oligarchs have been able to bank in London, to keep their property in London, to educate their children in London, to have their legal disputes in London, to float their companies in London. Despite the fact that it's been clear that the time would come that, that they would cause a problem, we were essentially selling them the rope with which they would hang us. And yet in the same way that we provide banking services to the USSR back in the 1950s, we've been providing it to the kleptocrats in the 1990s, the 2000 noughts and the 2010s. So... Your new book, Oliver Bullock, Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servants of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals, makes the case uh, <laughs> clearly uh, that uh, money trumps morals. But one of the more extraordinary um, revelations is that in 1835, Britain took out a loan of £20 million, pounds, uh, which would be worth about £300 billion pounds today, that's about $350 billion. And this loan was not paid off until 2015 at the taxpayer's expense. And the money was supposed to be reparations for victims of the slave trade. But instead, the money went to the enslavers to compensate them for their loss of property. Of course, property being human beings. And then you point out that the beneficiaries of, of this compensation uh, the ancestors of the slave traders, including the actor uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and uh, former Prime Minister David Cameron. So tell us a little more about that, because that seems to s uh, set the moral bar rather low. Yeah, it should be said that that wasn't in, in my book. That was, I think, in the review in, of my book in The Washington Post. I, I, I wasn't entirely sure of the relevance of, of that particular uh, incident to, to the to the. I talk about it in my book. I, I wasn't quite sure why the reviewer wanted to talk about that, but it does make it very clear. And, and at, at no point in the book was I claiming that the that the British Empire was somehow a sort of a beacon of mora morality. I wasn't in any way saying that Britain used to be a great place and became a, a country of scoundrels. The point I make is that Britain used to be the oligarch, and it used to be the place that went around the world doing what Putin is doing now. If we if we didn't like a country's policies, we invaded it until it changed its mind, which is you know, very much the, the kleptocratic approach, though we used to call it colonialism in the old days. Uh, but, you know, after the 1950s, we could no longer afford to behave that way. So we, we, we essentially became the servant to the oligarchs rather than the actual oligarchs ourselves. 
so yeah, I mean that particular tale about about the the way that that the the end of slavery was was paid for is is um it, it is interesting, but it's not something I talk about in the book. So the other uh, place where the loopholes are, we mentioned uh, earlier, the the latest uh, loophole in terms of the ELPs, English Limited Partnerships. Scotland also has loopholes, doesn't it? Scottish law, anybody can register a company in Scotland without having to reveal the identity of its owners, the beneficial owners. Yeah, the, the, the limited partnerships are subtly different in England and Wales, in Scotland and also in Northern Ireland. The Scottish ones were the preferred vehicles of choice for money launderers because they they worked in in, in the best way, but they became notorious and the, the money launderers moved to Northern Irish and English ones. But there are plenty of other vehicles which are available. And you know, and if if they were to get fed up to the um, with the um, British versions, there are you know uh, plenty of other options in in other countries with common law jurisdiction, so Canada and Ireland and so on. So, you know, there are options in other places in the world. But one of the joys of Britain is that Britain has so many loopholes that if you're a money launderer, if one loophole gets closed, then you can always just pick another one. And that's exactly what happened here. When the Scottish Limited Partnership ceased to be available to the money launderers, then, you know, they could just exactly just trade down to the next one down the list and and start using English ones instead. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, Oliver Borg, I mentioned Boris Johnson earlier. He, it seems that he was using the Ukraine crisis in a way to distract from his own multiple problems he had with partying during COVID and uh, his other excesses. And eventually it, came, it became too much for the Conservative Party and they're still trying to, I guess, figure out who his successor is. But do you think that there is, in spite of... Johnson's opportunism there. Is there a sea change underway in the UK about relations with Russia because of their brutal invasion of Ukraine? And Johnson, of course, you know, he he was one of the architects of Brexit, which was in part financed from laundered Russian money through through a British um, insurance character. So, what's the status now? Yeah, I mean, you know, to give Boris Johnson his due, which is something I don't do very often. He has been very good at providing weapons to the Ukrainians. You know, Britain hasn't provided as many as the United States, but but it has has been in, in a very strong second or third place in that regard. But with regard to the tackling money laundering, it's been rhetorical rather than in reality. Lots of people have been sanctioned, but there's been very little movement to do anything beyond that. So will this change, you know, Britain's role as butler to the world? I, I fear not. You know, even if we do end up without Russian money here. There's a lot of other countries with oligarchs and, 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 and kleptocrats in them. And, and as long as this remains only a Russia crisis rather than a realisation that, you know, essentially laundering the money for thieves or from all over the world is a bad thing, until that realisation comes in, then I don't think Britain's likely to change at all, which is, a, which is a very worrying place for the rest of the world to be. Well, Oliver Bullock, I thank you very much for joining us here today. That's my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Oliver Bullock, who's a journalist and regular contributor to The Guardian, The New York Times, and GQ. He's authored two non-fiction books about Russian history and politics, The Last Man in Russia, and Let Our Fame Be Great, as well as Moneyland, Why Thieves and Crooks Now Rule the World and How to Take It Back. And his latest book just out is Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats, and Criminals.
We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how there are many countries poised to default on their debts following Sri Lanka's inability to pay down $54 billion in debts, a burden exacerbated by the rise in interest rates, now making it even more difficult for these countries to service debts. You may be an ambassador to England or France You may like to gamble I'd like to dance You may be the heavyweight champion of the world You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord But you're gonna have to serve somebody Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is Jamie Martin, who's a professor of history and of social studies at Harvard University, who until recently was a professor at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service and Department of History at Georgetown University. His research focuses on the history of international political economy and empire, particularly during the era of the World Wars, and he's the author of the new book, Just Out, The Medalists, Sovereignty, Empire, and the Birth of Global Economic Governance. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jamie Martin. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And it looks as though there's going to be an era of defaults coming up, starting with Sri Lanka and other countries like Ghana and Pakistan and Belarus are on the chopping block. In the case of Sri Lanka... Most of the debt is private debt, is it not? The sovereign debt comes from two rivals, China and India. So in terms of the IMF, what's the relationship then with the IMF and sovereign lenders who are presumably along with private lenders who are presumably along with sovereign lenders are all going to have to take a haircut? There's been a tendency to frame Sri Lanka's uh, recent economic and political crisis in terms of uh, uh, the role that China has played in uh, being a major creditor to Sri Lanka. Um, And certainly in the kind of uh, Western press, um, there's been, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's been this kind of tendency to see China as a kind of an irresponsible lender, right? Um, And now China is kind of facing a series of defaults or potential defaults beginning with Sri Lanka. Um, And there's almost a kind of a gleeful, you know, kind of uh, chickens coming home to roost narrative that's being spun. But actually, if you look at the facts of the matter, as you mentioned, so much of the debt that Sri Lanka owed was to private creditors, to banks um, in the West, American banks in particular. And this is true um, with many other um, low and middle income countries that are experiencing extreme debt distress right now. It simply isn't the case that this all can be kind of that the situation can all be reduced to a story of, of Chinese kind of loans going bad, that actually China has become a huge bilateral uh, lender over the last 15 years. But it kind of operates in this global landscape of debt politics with many other creditors, including uh, powerful uh, Western banks. So the notion that China is involved in debt traps to sort of strategically control countries on the on the cheap, if you will, is that a fair criticism? 
Look, I mean, I wouldn't want to say, I, I think it would be an exaggeration to say that China doesn't use lending um, in ways that are uh, tied to strategic aims. I mean, this is something obviously that many lenders do. However, I do th think that there's a tendency to exaggerate the role that, again, that these kind of Chinese loans gone bad um, is playing in this new brewing global debt crisis. That's part of the story. But again, there's also, you know, a major kind of responsibility lies in the hands of, of private creditors as well. Well, I've always been amazed at the alacrity with which the private creditors and and to some extent the IMF quick to offer loans. And it seems in many ways, if you take the example of Greece, the borrower gets punished, not the lender. I mean, the economist Jamie Galbraith wrote a book, um, Welcome to the Poison Chalice. So is what happened recently to Greece on the cards as these countries that we mentioned, and there's not a lot more of them in the pipeline, start to go, go into default? I mean, I'm, I'm a historian, so I'm naturally somewhat wary of making bold predictions, but I do think that this is potentially uh, in play here. I mean, clearly, the IMF continues to have a role in kind of uh, acting as a financial firefighter on the world. Sri Lanka now has turned to the IMF for assistance. We see Pakistan and Bangladesh as well doing similarly. And, you know, for its most vulnerable member states, the IMF, again, you know, continues to play this role of emergency lender. Um, but usually the way that it does so is that it insists on quite painful conditions, um, kind of, you know, first and foremost, fiscal austerity that, you know, in order to get IMF emergency assistance, in most cases, this still requires quite painful um, austerity. So I think the model of Greece here may be instructive. Um, obviously, Greece, you know, in the kind of during the Eurozone crisis, receiving financial assistance from the IMF and other international bodies, um, but assistance that came with quite uh, painful strings attached. But the assumption is that the Wall Street lenders are smart, and why would they lend so much money to a country like Sri Lanka that was run by a crooked family? I mean, they must have had some intelligence. Uh, what's the logic there? Of What's the attraction of investing in relatively unstable third world countries? Well, you know, it's a question of higher yield, right? I mean, kind of often riskier bets can return higher returns, <laughs> as it were. And certainly, you know, in the period of kind of very, very low interest rates um, since the global financial crisis, you have seen this search for yield um, globally, and you have seen capital kind of, you know, moving around the world um, in search of returns. And this has produced a situation in which many countries have become very, very heavily indebted. Um, and now, as uh, central banks are raising interest rates, as the kind of COVID pandemic has produced extreme economic stress, and as the war in Ukraine and Western sanctions against Russia kind of exacerbate this global inflationary crisis, that a lot of these debts are, are becoming unsustainable. And again, I'm speaking with Jamie Martin, who's a professor of history and of social studies at Harvard University, who until recently was a professor in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service and Department of History at Georgetown University. His research focuses on the history of international political economy and empire, particularly during the era of the World Wars. And he's the author of the new book, Just Out, The Medalists, Sovereignty, Empire, 
and the birth of global economic governance. So let's uh, go back into the history that you cover in your new book, Jamie Martin. I take it that during the colonial era, powerful European countries just plundered Africa and other and Asia, etc. And then it was basically the League of Nations that first started to come up with a, a more organized way of um, dealing with a powerful form of colonial states and, uh, and uh, their colonial masters. And was the, the legacy of colonialism ever really extinguished or did it just go from colonial sort of police and administrative power to a colonial form of banker diplomacy, as, as you describe it? There are important continuities between particularly 19th century contexts of empire and the birth of global economic governance in the interwar period that I trace in the book. Essentially, what the book argues is that the first international economic institutions appeared at a moment of profound economic and political turmoil in the wake of the First World War, when the relationship of empire and global capitalism was undergoing profound changes. So you see institutions like the League of Nations develop the first powerful peacetime intergovernmental economic bodies. And as the League of Nations develops these brand new and uh, nearly unprecedented powers of economic governance, it draws on existing models from essentially informal empire, forms of empire that had existed before the First World War that didn't necessarily rely on outright territorial annexation and colonization, but that nonetheless involved coercive relationships between empires and formally sovereign states that nonetheless saw their autonomy chipped away at by powerful external actors. So again, there is a great degree of continuity, particularly between 19th century informal empire and the birth of global economic governance after the First World War. And then you've, 1944 is also a critical moment, right, with the Bretton Woods. And what was the, the essential struggle going on there between John Maynard Keynes representing the British and, um, what is his name, Harry Dixon White, the US Treasury Secretary? Yeah, so 1944 is the year in which the Bretton Woods Conference meets, uh, and this has kind of famously been seen as the moment at which global economic governance was born. Of course, in my book, I argue actually that the Bretton Woods Conference was more a midway point in a longer story. It wasn't the beginning. Um, But nonetheless, as you say, it it was an absolutely crucial moment in the evolution of global economic governance. Um, And at Bretton Woods, you see this quite fraught debate between a rising United States and a declining British empire about what the nature of the post-war international monetary system is going to look like and what the new institutions that will be created in order to govern the post-world world economy, what powers they will be able to wield. So, of course, we see at this moment the birth of the IMF and the World Bank two institutions that continue to exist today. So the nature of the dispute between um, uh, John Maynard Keynes and Harry Dexter White, I mean, there, there are many things that they disagreed on. They're kind of, they were in fundamental agreement that there was a, a need for a new international monetary order, a need for some kind of international stabilization fund, as White called it, Um, or an international monetary fund, as it would come to be called. But one particularly controversial 
kind of point of disagreement between them or between what would kind of come to be taken as a U.S. position and a British position was over how interventionist this International Monetary Fund would be able to be. Would it be able to tell its member states what kind of fiscal policies they needed to run, how they should do monetary policy? Keynes insisted throughout the entire period in which negotiations were happening, that this international monetary institution could never be allowed to develop these interventionist powers, that it had to stay out of the domestic decisions of its member states. But ultimately, a more interventionist IMF um, uh, kind of came onto the scene very shortly after the end of the war and very shortly after Keynes's death. So... Then we go to the 1970s, where the Bretton Woods regime starts to unravel, if that's the right way to put it. And how much did that have to do with Nixon taking the U.S. off the gold standard? Yeah, I mean, Nixon taking the U.S. off the gold standard is kind of, you know, that is really the moment at which this system, you know, essentially falls apart. That's the key decision. And why did he do it? Well, there, you know, there's this kind of this situation in which uh, it's kind of essentially, you know, the U.S. dollar has kind of become de facto the world's currency of reserve. However, U.S. balance of payments are in deficit. Um, countries like Europe and Japan have growing surpluses. Um, late 1960, more and more European countries want to swap dollars for gold. The U.S. refuses to allow dollars to be, you know, to continue to be converted into gold, and voila. Um, the decision is made to say, you know, you can no longer swap U.S. dollars for gold. Um, the U.S. is off the gold standard. And once this happens, the kind of entire system of fixed but adjustable exchange rates um, comes to an end. So it's been referred to as a kind of trif is the, the so-called Triffin dilemma, that you have the U.S. dollars acting as reserve currency, and then the U.S. kind of needing to run a constant balance of payments deficit for the rest of the world. The deficit leads to falling confidence in the dollar. People start to cash in the dollars for gold, and then the system breaks down. Yeah, I recall at the time, um, President de Gaulle of France was asserting global leadership, and he was one of the leaders is it wasn't not in demanding gold for dollars. Yeah, I mean the the French kind of famously referred to the U.S. dollar um, system as, as as giving the United States a kind of exorbitant privilege, right? And so there there is a sense in which um, this was something that was particularly irksome to De Gaulle. Well, it obviously what happened. That, I mean, prior to this, of course, when we talked about Bretton Woods earlier and going back to the League of Nations, the U.S. of course. The Brits essentially got into more into debt in World War One to the UK, to the US, and in World War Two even deeper did they not. So mm. the US had enormous you know, economic power simply by being the number one creditor at that point. Right? Absolutely, and the First World War kind of fundamentally transforms the United States um, from a net debtor into a net creditor, and this is clearly the moment. That kind of you know launches the U.S. into this position of extraordinary global power. Um, however, in the wake of the First World War, you know, famously, the U.S. state kind of refuses to take on the full burdens of you know kind of providing global public goods. You know, the United States refuses to join the League of Nations, famously. Um, but nonetheless, U.S. private institutions, U.S. banks um, play enormous roles 
interwar kind of economic diplomacy, U.S. financial power is everywhere to be found um, in the years between uh, the world wars. But then, of course, it's famously during the Second World War and in the aftermath of the Second World War, the kind of U.S. state and kind of U.S., the kind of full power of the U.S. military and U.S. um, diplomatic apparatus kind of arrives, you know, ready now to perform the role of global hegemon. So now we're back to the situation today with a number of countries going into default and heading into debt. And of course, interest rates are rising, which means that debt servicing is, is more onerous, right? So do you see a way out of what seems to be an international, the growing international debt crisis? I think that the situation right now is extremely, extremely challenging and uh, extremely unsettling. Um, As you mentioned, many, many countries are experiencing extreme debt distress. Some estimates see potentially upwards of 20 countries facing the possibility of default. I think it's extremely difficult to see a way out of this situation right now, in large part uh, given this new era of monetary tightening that we're entering as the United States, the Bank of England, the ECB, and other central banks raise interest rates, this is making debt servicing much more expensive. Um, this is making the cost of imports, um, goods like food and fuel and fertilizers, um, much more expensive as the value of the U.S. dollar is pushed to historic heights. And this is really a series of conditions that is really potentially catastrophic for low and middle income countries. And I think, you know, it will require great kind of great ambition in uh, uh, creditors, um, you know, essentially looking to you know, restructure debt and, and achieve some kind of real multilateral agreements on how to get out of the situation. But I would not say that I'm uh, kind of profoundly optimistic that what is coming, that the kind of responses coming will be up to the challenges um, that the world faces right now. And these challenges, uh, as these countries go into distress and they can't buy food and gasoline and medicine, you see the, the humanitarian cost, right? And therefore the world, or at least the developed world, has an even greater responsibility, it seems, to meet the humanitarian crisis caused by the financial crisis. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a very, very serious global food crisis right now. And obviously there is uh, clearly the possibility of extreme political instability and turmoil that you know, always or often attends these kinds of um, global economic crises. And clearly in the case of Sri Lanka, you know, uh, the situation is quite fluid, but obviously, you know, the kind of uh, very shortly after default came a revolution. And, you know, I think that this is obviously another possible outcome for other countries around the world. At least a period of heightened political instability is a kind of, you know, an obvious potential consequence of this extreme debt um, distress that so many countries are facing. Well, Jamie Martin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Jamie Martin, who's a professor of history and of social studies at Harvard University, who until recently was a professor in the Edmund A. Wall School of Foreign Service and Department of History at Georgetown University. His research focuses on the history of international political economy and empire, particularly during the era of the World Wars. And he's the author of the new book, Just Out, The Meddlers, Sovereignty, Empire and the Birth of Global Economic Governance. 
This is Beam Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. And the other became